beginning at verse 1. We've been uh, looking at passages in the Gospels that describe Jesus' encounters with people. We've, we've seen so far in those various encounters, uh, probably predominantly, uh, the compassion of Jesus. You may remember me mentioning that B.B. Warfield in an article, the, the Emotional Life of Our Lord, argues that the dominant emotion in the life of Jesus is compassion. Compassion for people in need. Compassion for people like us. Uh, Jesus is a pathetic Savior. Got your attention, didn't I? Meaning he is filled with pathos. Filled with feeling for people like us in need. Well, Jesus, because he is compassionate, because he is filled with pathos, he is also honest. And he is ruthlessly honest and relentlessly honest. And these two things, his honesty and his compassion, are not at odds with one another, uh, but they are married in him. And in this encounter, Jesus is confronting, if you will, as I think we'll see, the Pharisees. And I want to encourage you, as we look at this passage, to remember that there is in each of us lurking the heart of a Pharisee. And so as we look at this passage and hear Jesus interacting in this particular setting, you'd be making a great mistake if you were to say, I hope so-and-so is listening. Because I am the so-and-so who needs to be listening. We are the so-and-sos who need to be listening. So as we hear God's word, Let's hear it with these words in mind. Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country? And go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. And just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. 
and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came near and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. He said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered the father, look, these many years I have served you, I have slaved for you. And I never disobeyed your command, but you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, help us. Give us the same joy. The joy of the shepherd, the joy of the woman, the joy of the father the joy of the triune God who celebrate at the return of one sinner. Help us by your spirit to take this word into our souls and to apply it in the way that we live, we ask in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. It's a lengthy reading, but I read it all because it all hangs together. It's three parables, but it's one parable. And you really can't understand the very familiar parable, the parable of the prodigal son, if you detach it from its context, if you separate it from its context. 
And as I suggested to you before we began to read the passage, the context is this encounter which Jesus has with Pharisees and tax collectors. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. Tax collectors and sinners. Now I don't know if you know what tax collectors and sinners are. Tax collectors were Jews who were hired by the Roman government to collect taxes from their countrymen. And the office went to the highest bidder. So you bid for these things. Good free market kind of stuff. Good open laissez-faire capitalism, right? Bidding for something. The office went to the highest bidder. Well, the way you covered your expenses then was by collecting not only taxes, but by collecting enough to cover your expenses. And there were no rules or regulations, no, I don't know what the agency is, SEC or, you know, no IRS, none of those agencies to regulate this thing. There were no rules. You just got the job and got the job done. And these guys were ruthless. They were ruthless. They were fraudulent. They were deceitful. Remember the story of little Zacchaeus, the little man who was a tax collector, probably had a Napoleon complex. That's why he went after the job. Being a tax collector gave him power over people. Remember little Zacchaeus up in the tree? The crowds were massive. He wanted to see Jesus. He's too short, so he gets up in the tree. That's what Zacchaeus was. And do you remember what Zacchaeus said when Jesus said, I'm coming to your home tonight for dinner. Zacchaeus said, if I've defrauded anybody, I'll pay him back fourfold what I've defrauded from them. It was just characteristic of these guys that they were fraudulent. Those are tax collectors. They were hated. And then they're sinners also, verse 1. Just a sort of a general category of unsavory people. Lots of different kinds of people fit under the general rubric or heading of sinner. Everything from prostitutes to thieves to pickpockets. Anybody who in the eyes of the Pharisee was an unsavory person fell under the general rubric of sinner. Tax collectors and sinners all gathering around Jesus coming to hear him. One of the commentators points out this very interesting juxtaposition of statements, which you'll miss if you don't collect the, connect the end of chapter 14 with the beginning of chapter 15. The last thing Jesus says at the end of chapter 14 is, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then in 15.1, he says it was the tax collectors and sinners who gathered around him to hear him. To hear him. Now the Pharisees were there as well. And what's their response to Jesus? The Pharisees mutter, grumble, complain. And what's the sort of summary of their muttering, their complaining? Rather than hearing, they're speaking and what they're saying is, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. And they were offended by it. They were offended by the associations that Jesus was keeping. They didn't like John the Baptist because he didn't eat and he didn't drink. They didn't like Jesus because he did eat and he did drink. 
They weren't satisfied with anybody except whom? <laughs> themselves. Themselves. And they're the ones who established the standard of righteousness against which everyone else is measured, including Jesus. There were about 6,000 Pharisees in the land at the time. About 6,000 of them. Not that many, but they were an elite group. They were smart. They were well-educated. They dressed well. They were polite. They did all of the right stuff. They made all of the right moves. They were the standard of righteousness against which everyone else was measured. Now, make no mistake, there is so much in this parable about the compassion of the Father for sinners, about the love of the Father for sinners, about the response of the Father to sinners. But you see, if you disconnect the parable of the prodigal son from its context, you're going to miss the fact that what Jesus is really doing, what he's really doing is rebuking the Pharisees. He does it through these parables. But what he's engaged in here is a kind of fourfold rebuke of the Pharisees. A fourfold rebuke of self-righteousness. A fourfold rebuke of this inclination to establish a standard against which everybody and everything else is measured. A fourfold rebuke against this inclination to create a sort of fortress of righteousness from which we lob our grenades, our mortars, our bombs at everybody outside the fortress. And I, you know, look, I'm a pastor. <laughs> I, I say this as a pastor. I encourage us to think of it as a pastor. But we simply recognize that there is this tendency in each of us to do this very thing. And the last thing in the world that you want, the last thing in the world that I want is for some massive wall to be erected that keeps people outside. And Jesus takes aim at the Pharisees in order to destroy those walls and level those walls so that a safe place is created for people who need a safe place. It's a fourfold rebuke. The first thing that Jesus rebukes them of is their forgetfulness. Look at verse 31. You want to remember uh, that, that you have in these two sons represented the two groups. The elder brother is the Pharisees. The younger brother is the tax collectors and sinners. But again, Jesus is taking aim at the elder brother. He's taking aim at the Pharisees. And the first thing he takes aim at is their forgetfulness. When the younger son comes home and the elder brother reacts the way that he reacts. We've read through this whole story, so you know what the reaction is. When the older brother reacts the way that he reacts, look at how the father responds to the son. He says, in effect, you're forgetting who you are. The older brother says, I've slaved for you. That's why I 
I emphasize that in the reading. The text says, your translation says, I've served you, but the, but the term, the verb, is slaved. I have slaved for you all these years. I've never violated a command. You've been a master. I've been a slave. You've set the rules. I've obeyed them. I've earned the fattened calf, but you've never given me the fattened calf. You've never even given me a goat to celebrate with. How has the older brother configured his relationship to God? How has the older brother configured his relationship to his father? Performance, rules, regulations. The Pharisees had forgotten that. And look at how the father responds to the son. He says to him, and you... You know, you, there aren't any notes in the text for the director, right? I mean, it's just a narrative. But if this thing is being acted out, is it hard to imagine the director saying to the person who's playing the role of the father, I want you to pause after the older son makes his comment. I want you to pause, and I want you to look him squarely in the eyes, and I want you to say to him, my son. My son, you're not a slave in this house. You're my son. The Pharisees had forgotten that they were sons in the house. They'd forgotten the whole nature of their relationship to God. They were great at focusing on the law. They were great. They had teachers of the law in their company. They were great at understanding the requirements and the prohibitions and, and explaining them and seeking to apply them uh, with, with incredible fervor and passion. The Pharisees are a group of people who emerged and who grew up, grew up in that intertestamental period, the period between Malachi and John, the period after the temple had been rebuilt, and they could see the zeal in Israel flagging, and they were a reform movement. They wanted to, to, to restore true fidelity to God in Israel. But they got so focused on the rules, on the regulations, they forgot they were sons. And they forgot the environment in which the law was given to them, in which the rules were given to them. They forgot Exodus chapter 20 is preceded by Exodus 19. Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. But Exodus 19 is the meeting of the people of God with God at Mount Sinai where God betroths Israel to himself, makes Israel his bride. They forgot Deuteronomy 7 shared this all this last Friday morning at the Women's Refuge Bible Study. You see, what we've got to remember, and we'll, we'll come to more of this in just a second, what we've got to remember is that God takes the initiative with us. That this is what differentiates Christianity from every other religion. Every other religion of the world asks the question, God asks the question, what will you do for me so that we can have a relationship. 
But in Christianity, rooted, deeply rooted in the soil of the Old Testament, God doesn't ask a question. God makes a statement. This is what I will do for you so that we can be in relationship to each other. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. Remember, God is saying to the Israelites, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people. He has set you apart. The term Pharisee comes from a verb that means to be detached or to be apart from. That's how they viewed themselves. That's what they wanted to be. They wanted to be different. But you see, what God is saying in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, is that the whole nation was a detached people, a separated people. And why were they detached? Why were they separated? Why were they set apart? Why is the whole nation a nation of Pharisees rightly understood? Read on in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people of slaves. That's not in my Bible. The Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. To be his treasured possession. Not to be a nation of slaves. Not to be a nation of servants. But to be a treasured possession, something embraced, something loved, something valued, something cherished. God also calls them a nation of priests, a, a royal priesthood. Not just one priest, but a nation, all elevated to this incredible place of being servants, loyal servants, robed, clothed. And the garments of royalty serving in his kingdom. Not laboring under rules and obligations. Duties and bondage. They forgot who they were. And they forgot. They forgot Exodus chapter 12. Remember Exodus chapter 12. The Passover. The Pharisees forgot that the reason the nation was able to leave Egypt and its place of bondage and servitude and oppressiveness is because God himself provided the substitute. They forgot that they were able to leave as free men and women to go to Mount Sinai, to be wed to their husband, the one who loved them, who cherished them, who desires that they be a treasured possession. I forgot the reason they were able to leave is because something innocent and spotless and without blemish had been slaughtered and its blood had been spread upon the doorposts and the lintel so that when the angel of death, the angel of judgment passed over those houses, the occupants of those houses would not die but would go free. Israel doesn't go to Mount Sinai to receive a law so that she might become the treasured possession of God. She is the treasured possession of God. And she goes to Mount Sinai to be wed to her husband so that she might live 
under his gracious governance and rule. And the Pharisees had forgotten that. And Jesus is rebuking them for their forgetfulness. You've forgotten that you are sons. It's a question I have to ask myself. I have to ask it all the time. It's a question Jack Miller used to ask people. Jack Miller was this guy who was the best Pharisee the world had ever seen until a wayward daughter, a lawless daughter, brought him to his knees and broke the bondage of his own Pharisaism, took him back to the cross where he could see his own freedom, and then with his wife was instrumental in the restoration of his daughter. Jack Miller used to ask folks, how are you living today? Are you living as a slave or are you living as a child, a daughter, a son of the living God? That's what Jesus wanted to ask the Pharisees. How are you living today? See, I must never forget who I am. You must never forget who you are. I ask you to remember things all the time in this church. I ask you, on the one hand, never forget what you were. Never forget what you were. But this morning I'm asking you never forget who you are as a Christian. One who has been loved. One who has been rescued by that same blood. One who has been brought to the heavenly Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, where you have been wed to your husband, who is Jesus the one who has spread that blood across the doorposts and lintel so that you might go free. Never forget that by that you've been made a child. You are a child of the living God. And then Jesus, part and parcel of rebuking the Pharisees for their forgetfulness is implicitly rebuking them for their wrong-headedness. They were just wrong-headed in the way they were thinking about their own salvation. They were failing as they failed to remember. They were failing to recognize that the basis upon which they are accepted by God, the basis upon which they have relationship to God, if we're not clear about anything else, let's be clear about this because it has enormous implications for how I live my life every day, how we relate to one another, and what we communicate to the world out there. If we don't, if we don't get anything else this morning, let's get this, let's be clear about this, that the basis upon which I am accepted by God, loved by God, embraced by God, and the cherished possession of God has nothing to do with me. Nothing. And please don't add a little something to the nothing. There there are three basic ways that we become Pharisees, and it's very subtle. I, I share this here periodically, but we all need reminders. There are three basic ways that we become Pharisees. We we take hold of Jesus, but then we start adding things. The Pharisees weren't denying the law. They weren't denying the scriptures. They embraced the Bible. 
But you see, they had the order wrong. They had up things upside down. And so they were adding things to the grace and love and mercy of God in which he provides a substitute, which is all you need. It's not a something plus something. It is a something plus nothing. And there are three ways that we start to add things to Jesus, who is the something. We can add ideas. We can say, it's Jesus and a right theology. You know, I know, I know that Jesus is the foundation for my acceptance with the Father, but you really need to have a good, solid, well-apprehended and well-articulated theology to be a part of the group. Oh, how careful we have to be about that. Look, theology is about God. It's about Christ. That's what it is. But you know, Christians do have distinctions. And Christians are at vastly different places along the continuum. And when those theological distinctions become add-ons to the sufficiency of Jesus, when we fail to acknowledge that people are at wildly different places along the continuum, that we all are in process and we establish some theological standard that is an add-on to Jesus by which people can be admitted to the group, that's Phariseeism. That's Phariseeism. We do it with moralisms too. We do it with doing things, doing the right things, with ethics or morality, if you will. It's Jesus plus a particular code of conduct, a particular standard of behavior. Remember the Pharisees? They didn't like anybody. They didn't like John because he didn't drink and eat. They didn't like Jesus because he did drink and eat. Pharisees have a very narrow band of behavior. And if you're outside that band, you're not a part of the group. Very easy, very easy for things to be add-ons, moral codes, behavioral codes that become add-ons to the uniqueness and the sufficiency of Jesus, the substitute redeemer. Can I get myself in trouble here? Of course you can, Mike. It can't be Jesus and the Republican Party. I know you chuckle, but it can't be Jesus and political issues. Are there some issues that are of such great moment that the church must speak to them because they touch the heart and core of what it is to be human and what it is to have a humane and just society? Of course there are. Of course there are. The preservation of the dignity and value of human beings created in the image of God is an issue that transcends political parties. There are those issues that have to be addressed because they're not issues of a party. They are issues touching our humanity and what it is to live in a just and humane society. 
be very careful that you not add something behavioral, political, ethical, moral, that is a preference, that is a point at which people are free to exercise Christian liberty and make those things standards against which your brothers and sisters are measured. That is Phariseeism. And then there's the third thing, the experiential thing. It's Jesus plus a religious experience. We can't create separations and divisions because you've had some religious experience that somebody else hasn't had. It is Jesus. And not Jesus plus an experience, not Jesus plus a moral code, not Jesus plus a particular theological framework and understanding. Is there theology in all of it? I've said this before. Of course there is. Is there behavior in all of it? Of course there is. Are there experiences to be had in this? Of course there are. But it's never Jesus plus. It is Jesus. And that is where the Pharisees became wrong-headed. And then the third thing that Jesus is attacking, that he is rebuking, is their divisiveness. Just look again at verses 1 and 2. We're kind of at the beginning and the end of this whole thing. But look at verses 1 and 2, and you see the evidence of the division. You see it in the parable. You see the elder brother divided from his younger brother, separated from his younger brother. Because of a moral code, because of a wrong-headedness about the nature of relationship to God. You see the Pharisees condemning Jesus for his association with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. And you see the Pharisees condemning those tax collectors, those prostitutes, those sinners as well. What has happened to the body? A division results. And folks, this is what is so insidious about Phariseeism. It's what is so insidious about Phariseeism. It begins with forgetting. It leads to being wrongheaded. And it creates divisions and separations within the family. And Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees because they've forgotten, they've become wrong-headed, and divisions result. He's condemning implicitly their spiritual pride and arrogance. And I want to tell you, folks, I just want to tell you that folks out there, when they encounter it, they can sniff it. They can smell it because it has the aroma of death. I'm just telling you because I care about you and I care about us and I care that we encourage and help each other and hold each other accountable in this. Pray for each other and pray for this church. I'm just telling you that when non-believing people or people who are on the margins or people who are seeking a safe place when they come to a place where Pharisaism exists, they smell it. They smell it. Did someone say to me just recently, 
listened to a particular tape by a particular person full of truth, full of truth, badly said, badly said. And the aroma that came out of that tape, that came out of that lecture, that came across from that CD was the aroma of arrogance and pride and superiority. And people can smell it. And so Jesus takes on not only the forgetfulness of the Pharisees and the wrongheadedness of the Pharisees, but the thing that inevitably flows out of it, and that is divisiveness and division in the house. And then the, the last thing that Jesus takes on, frankly, is the joylessness of the Pharisees. In each of these parables, the parable ends with rejoicing. And there's a progression in it, and I'll just submit this to you, ask you to think about it, ask you to marvel at it. The progression goes like this from verse 7, which says, I tell you there will be more joy, more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents then over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance, a general statement that there is rejoicing in heaven when one of these tax collectors, when one of these sinners comes to Jesus. That's what's going on here. It's the tax collectors and sinners who are coming to Jesus to hear him. Isn't it ironic? It's so striking. Here is the incarnation of perfection and righteousness Jesus who is ruthless and relentless when it comes to sin. Jesus who in no way, in no way, approves of what the younger son has done. Jesus who in no way approves of what tax collectors and sinners do when they defraud people, when they sleep with someone else's husband or wife, when they steal Jesus told the woman who was taken in adultery, don't do it anymore. He doesn't condone this stuff, but isn't it remarkable? Here is Jesus, the incarnation of perfection and righteousness, who is more set apart, more detached in that respect than anybody. He is the consummate Pharisee. And yet the Pharisees don't like him. And the tax collectors and sinners feel wonderfully comfortable in his presence. How striking is that? And Jesus in these parables says there is rejoicing in heaven when that happens. But then in the next parable it progresses. The woman finds her coin and she gathers her friends together, her neighbors. They all come together. They have a big party. And Jesus says... Verse 10, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. Now, I'm not saying the angels don't rejoice, but that isn't what the text says. The text doesn't say the angels are rejoicing. The text says there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one sinner who rejoices. And who is the one rejoicing whom the angels witness, 
whose rejoicing is caused by that one's rejoicing. It is the Father. It is the God of heaven and earth who is rejoicing when a sinner repents. And that is borne out in the parable of the prodigal son, the father who runs to embrace the returning son, the father who calls upon the servants to slaughter the fattened calf so that they can sing and dance. What happened when you became a Christian? There was a party in heaven and God led it. And the only reason anybody else partied is because God did. They take all their cues from him, which is good and right since he is the God of heaven and earth. And Jesus is rebuking the lawlessness of the Pharisees who can't see the incredible, glorious, marvelous, powerful, blessed thing it is that Jesus, who is the incarnation of the eternal God, God in the midst of us, is surrounded by repenting sinners. God help us. God help us to look for them. God help us to pray that they will come. God help us to run to embrace them and then gather here and slaughter the fattened calf and party at their return. God help us. God help us not to forget. God help us not to be wrongheaded. God help us not to be divisive. And God help us to rejoice as the gospel restores sinners. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your patience with us. Thank you for your patience with all of us. <laughs> Thank you for your patience with each of us. 